All right, welcome back to a bonus episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. So, hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies, a place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let me tell you what we're doing right now. We're getting ready to uh, release some of the archive that we found from when we were the sci-fi shenanigans. Uh, we're going to get those up there for, for the posts that were brought down. We thought you might enjoy them. Um, and so without further ado, let us uh, let us roll that beautiful... Oh, wait, they're going to sue me. Play it. Hey, all these crazy sci-fi fans. Time for your daily dose of insanity over here at the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions. A place where the sky's the limit, space is a place, and nerds run the world. And without further ado... All right, welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. That sound you heard was me opening a uh, carbonated beverage. I promise you I'm not day drinking. Uh, I leave that to the Marines. Uh, I, I drink at the respectable <laughs> hour of 5 o'clock, I promise. But uh, today... Am or beer. Don't bug me with minor details. <laughs> <laughs> I was infantry. It's five. That's all I need. But uh, today as our special guest, we have author extraordinaire Yakov Merkin. Uh, did we say that right or at least close enough for government work? Yeah, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And so uh, I should have asked that in advance to your listener, but you know, I never do. I never remember. So roll with it, please. And uh, so Yakov Merkin grew up in New York City, though now he lives on the other side of the world in Israel. And somehow misses the family cats deciding to walk across his keyboard while he works. You can work with them walking across the keyboard. Is that like a special skill? I managed. I mean, it's a matter of backspacing after they pass by. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So do you do you have like a water gun on hand to like shoot them away or something? No, most of the time back when I was living there, at least they were just really just, really just be a walk by and then walk out of the room or something. Just they walk across just so I remember they're there. And, yeah. <laughs> and then they're done. All right. So Yakov holds a master's degree in history, though uh, the plan was always to write science fiction and fantasy. The universe in his head had to get out one way or another. He can be found on Twitter and at yakovmerkin.com. As usual, all links will be uh, in the show notes below. Besides writing, he has helped build houses, worked on a farm, and practices Krav Maga, as well as as amateur-level parkour. What is parkour? I don't know the best way to It's like running and jumping and climbing on things. Um, I don't know the best the dictionary de definition for it, but it's like agility type uh, sport. We often do it outdoors. I don't do it outdoors because I don't want to hurt myself. Uh, I do. I did. I've done it mostly indoors, and uh, I've mostly these days really train a ninja warrior, which is specifically obstacle yeah. uh, course stuff. I'm familiar with ninja warrior. So imagine so, ninja warrior uh, in a in a crowded downtown area is where a lot of people do it. Yes, yeah, so yeah, so ninja, I'm training for that now. They just got it in Israel last year, so I'm on season two now. I tried to get on the show this year, didn't quite make it this year, so I'm planning to get on the show for season three, hopefully. And, All uh, right. So, do you yeah. get to like run around with samurai swords if you're going to be a ninja? Unfortunately, no. They call it ninja. I don't really know why, and because it's from their show, we originally started in Japan, so they just call it ninja. But I mean, just obstacle course, like agility stuff, upper body strength stuff. And, why, uh, 
but it's fun and it gives me reasons to actually work out. So fair enough. I feel cheated that they don't get to play with swords though, Winder. <laughs> well, that would All add right, a whole new level of difficulty. Bit. Yes, we'll do that for season four. So uh, Yakov is currently serving in the Israeli Defense Force, and his links, as usual, like I said, a reminder, can be found in the show notes below. I spent a lot of time prepping those, so you will look at them. You will look now. Okay. Uh, Did we get everything right, uh, Yakov? I think so. Nothing nothing missing. All right. Well, that's because I stole it shamelessly from your Amazon profile because I'm lazy like that. Work smarter, not harder. That's why it's it's there. So uh, in your profile picture uh, on your Amazon page, you've got some some really long hair right there. So did the IDF let you keep that? Oh, no. I I got that cut about a week before I drafted, and I donated it because it was just long enough to donate. And and so, yeah, since then, it's been more or less military regulation length. It depends on the week or if people on the base who care about that kind of thing tell me to cut it but usually it's still it stays pretty short these days okay i wasn't familiar enough with the uh, idf to know if they had the uh russian hair standards where sometimes it looks like they're you know full heavy metal death band with their their do or if it was more what we're used to in the u.s you know for guys it's it's a pretty i mean there is official regulations about how long it could be uh girls there isn't they just need to keep it tied up or tied back at all times while they're in uniform and stuff and then there's, there's much more easier to get exemptions in the idea for beards, though. Oh, from what I understand, right. like for very for, for religious reasons, I could very just I got it without a problem. Like to just if I'm religious, which I am, it's very it's automatically I get an exemption to have a beard, and you also get it for medical reasons if they have one that is relevant or whatever. But sure. uh, the beards are pretty common in the idea. Does that interfere with your gas mask seal? Uh, I wouldn't know because I haven't done any kind of training that would inv- involve us using one, so I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, dear listener, uh, before we bore you with the minutia of military life, we will move on to the second part of the introduction, which is how we found them. I actually found Yakov through the uh, Richard Fox's uh, Ember War fan group, uh, and when I realized he was an author, uh, we had to bring on this fellow veteran for a chat. I actually found him when he shared a picture of the Ember Wars graphic novel uh, standing on a tank in Israel. So it's kind of a cool picture, by the way. Thank you. It's been, it's been a thing that I've done like for the last year or so. And my base has an old neck of our one that's just like a monument now that's just sitting there. I figured I might as well uh, take pictures on there with books of authors that I know or I'm friends with or books that I crowdfunded because it's always fun for people to see those kind of pictures. And it's been kind of like my thing for, uh, for a while now. So – when you um, when you order your books in uh, Israel, I know people in Australia sometimes have problems with the paperbacks because it gets expensive um, through Amazon. Do you guys have that problem there, or is it pretty seamless? Uh, no, I mean it's 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 more expensive than shipping in the U.S. Obviously, uh, although actually just recently Amazon opened a fulfillment center in Israel, but I'm not sure how that's going to affect books. I haven't I haven't tried it out yet. It's very literally opened. I think this week they opened an Israeli site in English. And uh, they have a, a facility here now, but I'm not sure if that includes a print-on-demand site. I really hope it does, because then I can actually order mm-hmm. my own books, like author copies, to then like have on hand, which is like yeah. that's the biggest the biggest pain since I moved here. But I haven't I haven't really tried yet. I'm going to be trying hopefully in the next couple of weeks to see if that's an option, and then if it is, that'd be really awesome because making my life a lot easier. Because I I do like to buy books here and there from people that I know, or just other book other certain authors that I follow. And it does get it costly, so either I have to cough up the money for the shipping or I have to ship it to my parents' house in New York and then they'll send it with somebody 
uh, who's visiting Israel this summer. We have a lot of, luckily, we have a lot of friends uh, who visit here and there. So it's easy to send a book or two with somebody. And then I just meet up with them and pick it up. So does and, Israel have a, um, a vibrant sci-fi fantasy fandom or no? Uh, I don't know how much our organizers, but there are definitely a lot of people who read that kind of stuff here. I mean, there are a fair amount of English speakers who've moved from America or the UK who read that stuff, as well as Israelis who read in English or read stuff translated to Hebrew. They have a convention uh, every year around the extraction in like another two, three weeks or so. They have a big convention in Tel Aviv, like a big sci-fi fantasy convention and like a game and stuff also. And they have another one, I think that's newer, that they have uh, in the spring. Might be another one or two, but it might have an anime-specific one also at some point during the year. I don't know exactly. I haven't had time to go this year. I might be able to make it. I might have off that week. So if I do, I'm going to try and go. My brother is in Israel now also, and he's probably going to go to that. So I might try and go meet up with him there. And uh, one year, I want to definitely go with to have a booth there. But that requires a little bit more planning in advance and knowing I'll have time off to actually sit there. All right. Fair enough. What about you, Wander? How did you find uh, Yakov, the one, the only, the Yakov? Yakov and I are actually space ninjas, and we could tell you what we do as space ninjas, but uh, it happens in space, so you probably wouldn't understand. But one thing you should know is that doing a quadruple forward flip in space is a whole lot easier than doing it on Earth. I've got the uh, I've got the cast to prove it. So that's all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Yakov. So now, all right. now the sci-fi religion question: Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Yeah, that was a hard one to think about. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I've been over the course of my life more uh, out of those three. I've enjoyed Star Wars overall the most. I grew up first with Star Trek. My parents are very big original series fans. So I grew up with that. But then I fell in love with Star Wars when I was younger and stuck with that for a long time. Read a lot of the old Spanish Universe books. Not all of them, but most of them. A good 80% of them I think I've read. And I really stuck with it. Pretty, pretty religiously, for lack of a better term, uh, more or less until The Force Awakens came out. And, a little, and around when, right, by the time Rogue One was out, I kind of was drifting away from it because Disney. And now I'm, I kind of see it there. So. Yeah, I, I was going to ask about that. And uh, yeah, you go, you went ahead and answered <laughs> it. I think we all, or at least most of us, feel the same. We're kind of yeah, well, Star Trek 2 is also kind of, on, kind of dead now anyway. And Firefly was dead yeah, on arrival, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, Kurt, you Fox. Yeah. All right. So, what do you love about science fiction as a genre? Uh, I mean, it just allows writers to just really do whatever you want, especially in space opera, which is what I like the most. I can literally do whatever I want. I can type, do any kind of stories I want. Like, if I want to do a more action-heavy military-focused story, I could do that. I could do the big, the big sweeping epics that I like, which is what I'm writing. I could also do even smaller stories, or adventure stories, or even more on the horror side or um, or just more like exploration type of stories. There's just so many options because space opera, especially you have a whole galaxy to work with, if not more. And it's such a big amount of space with so many different characters or species and planets that I could just easily even have a little story set off to the side somewhere that doesn't connect to anything and uh, just do whatever I want really. And also it allows, and also you could just make up any kind of, spatial anomalies or whatever to have anything really weird happen if you want it's yeah. like who cares i mean it's just like it just it's there you can figure out something that sounds reasonable enough star trek did it plenty of times 
and uh, yeah, they sure did. And it just makes it. Like, that's why it's funny people call Star Trek science fiction. I mean, it's like it tries to be smarter, but really, it's not that much smart. At least not most of the time than like Star Wars, like, because so much stuff in Star Trek really is just space magic, even though they don't call it that. Yeah. Yeah, such as what was that character Q? Yeah, Q was. Yeah, I never liked Q. I hated that guy. <laughs> that was the worst character ever. Yeah. Okay. So, so be, uh, besides Star Wars, uh, what was your first memory of reading, writing, or playing games in the sci-fi genre? Uh, or reading uh, in sci-fi, it probably was something Star Wars related. Uh, I mean, I did also obviously watching Star Trek from when I was a little kid, and various other shows, uh, and also some games here that I played StarCraft uh, and StarCraft 2, and I played, oh, yeah. math, played a lot of Mass Effect. Uh, rest in peace, that franchise also. Um, like That was a big game for me. That's a big, that was a big impact and a big influence on my own uh, creative uh, approaches and my own, uh, what eventually became my own galaxy. And uh, these days, it's really been more indie stuff with the exception of anything Timothy Zahn writes, because even though it's Disney Star Wars, he still writes great books. So I will react. Yeah, yeah he does. <laughs> so, so I had to go from your love of science fiction to writing in it. Did you start somewhere else or did you just hit, hit sci-fi hard? I don't remember exactly. It was really, it was like a while ago when I first got the idea to write something. I think it was back when I was like 12, 13 years old. Like, Mm-hmm. I think I watched a TV show about like what if dinosaurs didn't die off and then like they evolved like alongside mammals and how they might look and stuff. And that kind of gave me the idea for like a dinosaur people, which is what became the Tyrannodons in my in my own books. And so that started back then. I wrote, I don't know, maybe a hundred pages worth of that story back when I was thirteen and fourteen. And at that point I kind of set it aside for a while or a high school happened and I just didn't really write much for a while. And then over time, it kind of just, I started to go back to it. I realized I wanted, it's what I wanted to do. And I went back, revised a lot of that because while a lot of, while some of this stuff actually more than I really expected in a way stayed in the initial, in the actual story from what I originally wrote, originally wrote down. Um, obviously writing something at 13 years old is not going to be that great for many respects. So it would change a lot. And then. Uh, over the next months, I was like my first or second year of college. I started to really write seriously. Then I finished the book finally and uh, tried to get it published with a regular publisher for a while and then eventually decided for multiple reasons to just go with myself. And then I put it out finally in spring of 2017. So Nice. So who's been the largest influence in your writing? Do you have a, an author you try to emulate? Is it, is it Timothy Zahn? Um, to some degree, I mean, I don't have any specific one person who I would say is like the influence that I've read. I, when I was little, I would, my parents would joke that I read books in series. I, I didn't read books. I read series. So like I would just read a ton and I read, I read, I really read mostly fantasy books when I was younger. So I read a lot of, obviously I read Robert Jordan with Wheel of Time, read Lord of the Rings, obviously, and stuff like that. And I read a lot of Brandon Sanderson when I was like in high school and I still follow his books now. Um, so he's been a big influence on not as much necessarily the like the type of stories I write, but in some of the approaches and how and world building and that uh, that sort of thing, and just like the shared universe kind of uh, set up with with his unit. Like, he has a universe; all of his books are in the same universe. I kind of doing the same thing to a degree, um, which I guess it's always just fun. They like getting creating a universe, not just individual settings here and there. So I kind of like that feeling more. So he's been a big influence. I got to meet him a couple of times. It was very nice. 
And, uh, and Timothy Zanov is a big influence as far as space tactics and space battles go because there really aren't that many books that I've read that have better stuff than the Thrawn books, both the old ones and the new ones in that sense. And uh, space battles are fun, but they're also hard to write. It's like one of those things like in your head, it's really easy, but then when you start writing it, you realize it's not anywhere near as easy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, exactly. Now this is the part, dear listener, where we list out the various series that Yakov Merkin has written. So we have the Dragon Hand. The Dragon, um, it says it's listed as the Dragon King trilogy, but it looks like it stands alone. So are you going to come back to that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I originally just put it out because I had the book finished a couple years ago already. And I was like, I think I was right before I drafted or right around when I was in going to the army. And I wanted to just put another book out. So I put it out, but then I kind of realized I would especially given my limited time and limited ability in terms of marketing. So I decided it would probably not be the best idea to try and simultaneously like alternate releases of two series right now. And just, I decided to just focus on the Alki series to finish it off. And once that's done, I'm going to go back to finish this trilogy and other stuff I'm working on. Cause it just makes more sense. I think, especially because I'm still a pretty small online presence to just uh, focus on the one thing, get it finished. Cause some readers want to see the series finished for, reasons I completely understand and just get that done, get that out there and then move on to something else and uh, go from there. So it's out there and I'll probably do some kind of relaunch or re-release or something like that once it's time to uh, get back to it or do a crowdfund for the second book, but also obviously push the first book because it didn't really do that much because I didn't really end up promoting it as much as it really should have been. And uh, But yeah, it's definitely going to be happening and just Needs to wait a little bit until I finish book seven, which will hopefully be by the end of the year of Galaxy Ascendant. And then by 2020, we'll be back to fantasy for me. Outstanding. So we have the Galaxy Ascendant series next, which uh, on Amazon, you can find A Greater Duty, A Looming Shadow, and Shifting Alliances. I believe the other books currently are through the Kickstarter process you mentioned? Yeah, I just ran an Indiegogo campaign that finished a couple a week or so ago for those two books. I actually just launched just a little while ago today a follow-up Kickstarter because I kind of want to see if I could, if I could earn some more, uh, cause I didn't hit my goal precisely. I need to go, go. So I want to try Kickstarter out now because there's no reason not to. And just to see if I could raise some more on there and also just to check out the platform. Cause Indiegogo has the advantage of the flexible funding, right? You know, I'll get what I raise even if I don't hit my goal. So I've, I've defaulted to that one because again, I've, I'm still a pretty small name and pretty small presence, uh, in writing. But now that this, I already did the one crowdfund for the, these books. I wanted to try Kickstarter out to see if it. Some people have said overall average earnings are higher there, so I wanted to try it out. And for these two books, so that just launched today. I'm going to see what I can raise there, and if it does well, then I obviously probably switch to Kickstarter for future books. But that actually just launched today. And that's going to run for 30 days or so. All right. So uh, Canon Publishing, Military Sci-Fi Space Fantasy Anthology, Mecca, a Canon Anthology, Cross Currents, Navigating the Turbulent Politics of the Right During the Horthy Era in Hungary, 1920 to 1944, which was your master's thesis. So yeah. does that actually make you a lot of money writing, publishing your master's thesis? More than I expected, actually. Oh. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was the cheapest book to put out because I just – Got a family member to design the cover for me for free. She just did it for free. And all I had to pay for was the formatting because it was already all written and edited for my for my degree. And I just put it out there because I already I had already put out a couple books and I knew how to do it and it doesn't cost anything. And it's also a topic that's very underserved, very understudied. And there's really nothing in English 
that's an easy like basic primer on the topic that you could buy on Amazon. So that's why I put it up there. And it's like, it's been consistently in the top. If you search Horthy on Amazon books, like I've been as high as number two after his own memoir, huh. like depending on how many books I've sold recently. And I've sold like more than I expected. Honestly, I sell every week or so. I sell a book or two. Once I sold five books in one day, which I'm pretty sure was some graduate class that is a teacher bought like five books for a seminar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it was like five print books. That's like, that's very weird. It must be a class somewhere. That's being taught. I wish I knew who it was because I could reach out to them or something, but you can't tell on Amazon who buys your books. So, all right. But yeah, it was actually, it has made more, it has made more than I thought, especially I, I don't advertise it at all, except for like, if I talk about it on, on the topic on Twitter once in a while, then I'll obviously share it there. But otherwise, it's just there. And uh, it's really Galaxy Center that's my main uh, focus, my main project at this point. And then the. The short stories that like someone I know is doing the anthology and someone on Facebook taking uh, submissions. And I was, I'm trying to figure out the short story thing because that's harder for me than writing novels still. So I started to have, since I had the basic uh, guidelines, I could just try and write a couple. And I did. And they came out pretty, pretty good. And uh, I've done two so far. And I think he's going to do, hopefully, hopefully there'll be a second Mecca one because I want to kind of follow up the same characters again, just keep like almost like a serial type of thing with those characters going on if, if the anthology keeps going. All cool. right. Okay, so we've looked at all of your books, and they all sound amazing, but today we're going to focus on your Galaxy Ascendant series, specifically book one, A Greater Duty. So how'd you come up with the idea or, or premise for this series? Where'd the spark of in- inspiration come from? Well, the initial idea, like I think I mentioned earlier a little bit, was I watched a TV show like back when I was 12, 13, that speculated how... Uh, some dinosaurs might look specifically the Troodon dinosaur that was, as far as we know now, was probably the most intelligent dinosaur that existed. Um, I, what, what it might look like if it didn't die off and it just evolved alongside other mammals and how it would become, probably, it might have become bipedal, might have become like, like a lizard person, basically. And so that would be a cool idea of like a type of character, a type of species. And then from there, it just, I don't I really don't remember exactly how the initial story concepts came out, but it was, uh, like it's kind of, like it kind of um, incubated over the course of like a decade or so as I wrote a bit and then stopped and then wrote some more, then rewrote and then stopped again and then finally wrote the whole thing. But uh, eventually it all coalesced into a story that became a lot bigger than I initially planned, as often happens. Yeah. <laughs> I would know nothing about that. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't so, going to say anything. <laughs> I, I saw you looking at me through the computer. So uh, before before we dig in, can we just take a moment to say that your cover art is amazing? So they, they do seem very reminiscent of the old pulp covers we used to love from the 80s. So what do you look for when you're picking your covers? What do you think makes a good fit for the subgenres you write in? Uh, well, when I was first looking for an artist for my for my covers, I wanted something that looked like a little bit, again, a little bit more like, like you said, like the more... Uh, a little bit, I don't know if retro is the right word, the more classic type of sci-fi covers as opposed to like so many books now, they're just a, a spaceship, like a digital spaceship on a, on a, like a space background, which looks pretty, but doesn't really tell you much of anything. And it's, like I said, it's very generic. And I wanted someone who would actually like really make real art, which my artist does. He actually physically paints all my artwork. So I actually just, just today, actually, I bought my art from my artist, the Dragon Hand, uh, the actual cover art. So I have the actual art piece in my room right now. I have to get it framed. But I actually just got today, and so he does actually really paint all the stuff, and and his and I, his style I've seen his art in Magic the Gathering a couple of times, and it was the kind of style that looked 
kind of like what I wanted. And he also does fantasy and sci-fi, which is perfect for me. And so I just contacted him and luckily he took commissions and luckily also he doesn't charge ridiculous prices for it. And it's been really, really fun to where I've been the same artist for all my books so far. So it's been including, including the two books that are coming out soon. That's uh, six books already. And I'm just emailing him now. I'm in progress of getting the next two books going. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. I, I knew I wanted to have my characters on the cover as opposed to like a ship, like I said, because it's more interesting, I think. And you don't have as many books that, that, that showcase the characters, especially because all my characters are aliens. And even though I describe them in the books at different points, it does help to some degree to have actual artwork of them. And also it's a kind of a stealth way to get fan art of my characters off the bat because it's my cover. I can do what I want with it. So I decided to just have my characters there because now I have art of all my characters pretty much on the books. So I could have it in my head, how they look and readers could have an idea how they look and it just makes it more fun. All right. So uh, when I read the blurb and your reviews, uh, the obvious comparison jumped out to me that this had a very Star Wars vibe. You've mentioned that you were a fan, um, but uh, the reviewer seemed to think you took Star Wars and told it as it should have been said. You see that in a lot of space opera reviews. A lot of people seem dissatisfied with, uh, how should we say, the current direction of the series. So uh, do you think the uh, fans were way off? Was your uh series similar to star wars uh was the and if so was the similarity intentional or happy coincidence uh i guess to some degree there's there are obviously some similarities especially in the, in the more recent books because like some of the more recent plot lines are more star wars inspired the first couple really were not as much star wars inspired he's not directly plot wise because my stories are more of like the epic type of story like epic almost like epic fantasy in space in a way as opposed to star wars at least the original series was original trilogy was more an adventure story focused on like a, like, a, like a nobody character who was they could just from this nowhere planet going on becoming a great a great warrior great jedi and all that whereas all all my main characters at least in the first couple of books were people of authority people of leadership positions uh in later books i have some more characters who are like smaller characters for lack of a better term uh so it's a little bit more star warsy in that respect but i think people are just People just want fun space opera action, which they're not really getting from Star Wars. So anything that gives it to them will get compared to Star Wars, whether or not the plot is directly like uh, comparable or not. Because the fun parts are what people care about, and the fun parts are what I'm hopefully giving, and what Star Wars I know is not giving right now. All right. So um, since we brought it up, are you a purist about the uh, the new movies? I, I don't think they count as, as Star Wars. They're just you know. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I, I didn't mind Force Awakens when it first came out because I was like, okay, this is the first one. They, they want to play it safe. That's fine. So now the second movie will either make the Force Awakens better or worse in hindsight. And it made it worse because the last shot it was the worst Star Wars movie ever made. So, <laughs> so I was I was like more or less like pretty neutral on it at first. And I didn't – like I said, I didn't mind Force Awakens. Rogue One was kind of boring except for the last half hour, which I liked a lot because uh, it was the best Star Wars battle they've had on screen so far, at least in uh, – live action so so there was that but then the last jedi was terrible and i really just at this point just don't care like i, I want i want episode nine to be as bad as possible because that's when i laugh at it shot in front i watch and i mean i watch i watch clone wars the last season when it comes out just because that is really basically leftovers from the actual show that was actually really good so it's not even really disney star wars actually i mean maybe some aspects of it a little bit here and there but i mean i'll still watch it 
just because the rest of the show was great and is it going to finish it up? So whatever, that's fine. And obviously, like I said before, I still read the Timothy Zahn books, even for the new canon, because he's great and Thrawn is the best character in Star Wars right now. He's the only hero in Star Wars right now, in my opinion. So I'll read anything that he's in, even though the books are kind of hamstrung by the fact that they can't go beyond the Rebels uh, finale because they all, they don't allow Timothy Zahn to write beyond that because they don't even know what they want to do with the character yet. So like the last book especially was kind of hamstrung because it literally takes place in one week between two two episodes of the show. Like that's all he had to work with and he made a really good book out of it. But it's like, can we see what happens afterwards? Because we know how his story ends in Rebels at this point. So like let us see something really cool because some really cool stuff teased, but he can't get into it because of the constraints of – the greater Disney canon at this point. Fair enough. So, Although I would argue that uh, Emperor Palpatine and uh, Darth Vader were also heroes in the Star Wars canon, <laughs> but um, Darth Vader did nothing wrong. <clears throat> so did, what is your take on the, the books that are now classified as merely legends? I think they're some of the best yeah, stuff that, that's out there right now. Yeah. I mean, a lot of I mean, I mean, legend is a very mixed bag. A lot of it, there was so much of it. It's, there was not a lot of, there wasn't a lot of control on it for a lot of that time. So, like there were some really great stuff, like the Thrawn trilogy. Anything Zahn wrote was great. Some other ones are very good too. I, I didn't like as much the New Jedi Order stuff. That was the later series where like it was the big invasion of the galaxy. It kind of got too grim dark for me. I'm not really like Star Wars. The tone didn't feel right for Star Wars because it's not like there were like billions of people dying in every book, and it was like everybody was dying around the main characters. Like they don't get murdered like in Disney canon which is a plus, but then all their families get murdered basically around them. And it's kind of depressing and like a soap opera, which I didn't like so much, but uh, I mean, overall they're still are better because at least they were trying new things and trying to be interesting. And like it, a lot of things fell short for me, but a lot of people still like them and like, they're not just going to the back to the same exact old well for everything like we're seeing now. So in the hindsight, they do get better, but I was still, at least in the later books, kind of like I, I, I eventually just dropped off of them because it was kind of got unpleasant to read. So, All right. Well, this, dear listener, is where we pause and we shamelessly shill for the man. Hey, listeners, Josh Hayes here, co-host of Keystroke Medium. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Sci-Fi Shenanigans. I tell you, we're really excited about what JR and Chris are doing with the podcast and are proud to feature them as part of our podcast partner network. When you get done listening to this episode, I'd like to invite you to come check out our own podcast at keystrokemedium.com. You can find all our previous episodes and check out all the amazing authors we've had on the show. If you're free on Mondays, mark your calendars for 11 a.m. Come hang out with us as we talk to today's leading science fiction and fantasy authors and other industry professionals. We've got a great live audience who get into a lot of shenanigans of their own, as JR and Chris can attest. That's every Monday morning at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time, live on Keystroke Media. We're going to talk about some reading, we're going to talk about some writing, and of course, everything in between. And now I'll let you get back to some more shenanigans with JR and Chris. Have a great day. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that commercial interlude. We still have Yakov Merkin. Uh, he hasn't flown away. Uh, Disney hasn't struck him dead. So here we are. <laughs> and the next question is you, Winder. All right. So you, your premise also sounds a little bit similar to what Jason and Nick did with their Galaxy's Edge series. Was this intentional or just... Uh, along the same line. Yeah, I don't think it was intentional. I didn't even, like, I think actually with Greater Duty came out like a month before uh, the first Galaxy's Edge book came out. And obviously they're, they're machines. They wrote like ridiculously fast and they've got out like what, 10, 11 books at this point already. Um, so I think it, was, I think it just comes from a similar um, 
a similar desire to write Star Wars type stuff for this kind of sci-fi, military sci-fi or space opera sci-fi that we're not getting from the big franchises anymore. So like there's a few other people I know who also were doing this kind of stories because people enjoy it. We enjoy it. And if they're not, if the people think the franchises we used to love aren't going to make that anymore, then we'll make it ourselves really. And, uh, so there's definitely some overlap to a degree, but it wasn't uh, like, I, I didn't think I only started hearing about Galaxy's Edge as I was already basically preparing to release my first book. And I've read, I've, I've been, read all of the books so far I'm behind because I got them all on ebook, <laughs> which was a mistake. I should really get them in print because I read, I read much more in print than in ebook. And on ebook stuff on my phone, I'm not going to think to read most of the time. So I've really only gotten through the first couple. So at some point, I have to pick them up in paperback, I guess, to really get through the rest of them. Yeah, only yep. if I can afford it. There's so many of them. But uh, yeah, too many distractions on the phone, right? Yeah, and also because I mostly read on Saturday when I'm on base, because I keep Shabbat, I keep uh, the Sabbath, so I can't use my phone on that day. Oh, and if I'm yeah. on base. So when I'm on base, I'm all, I, have a, I have a 12 hour shift every when we do the weekend. It's 12 hours on, 12 hours off from my from my job, and so I have 12 hours that I'm just sitting in this room with literally nothing happening because it's a weekend. And I'm just sitting there, and I can't fall asleep, obviously. So I'm there. I can, have a, I can work out. There's a pull up bar on the door that I work out on, but I can't do that the whole time. So I bring books with me to base. I read two to three books every weekend, and I'm there every nice. Saturday. And so that's when I get most of my real reading done. So if it's on the phone, it's not getting read because the phone is off. So that's a problem. Yep. So uh, some of your readers compared this novel to David Weber's Starfire series. Was this intentional? Uh, have you read any of these books? I have not. I've heard. I know. I know of him. I've heard. I know a little bit about his series, but I haven't actually read any of his books. So, okay. but everybody who who everybody who I mentioned that to said that it's a very good thing to be compared to. So yeah. I'm taking that as a compliment. Yeah, definitely. All right. So finally, some of your reviewers thought this uh, universe reminded them a little bit of the Wing Commander video game series. So you did mention that you played games. So was this part of your inspiration and was it intentional? Uh, not directly. I, I'm familiar with the games. I never actually played like, in, in full any of the games. Um, I think I might have played a little bit here and there. I mean, I think obviously the big thing people notice is that obviously there's cat people in, in both of uh, both the games and in my series. That's probably where a lot of that like parallel came from, I guess, for some people. But it wasn't. I don't really know too much about the series, aside, the game, aside from that they exist and that they're fairly popular uh, space opera. All right, fair enough. Okay, and, and now onto the story itself. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your main character? What makes him or her unique in the crowded field of science fiction? This is where it gets a little bit hard because I have a lot of main characters now. <laughs> like as of as as a book as of, as of book four, really, I have eight viewpoint characters. In book five, I have nine, and it kind of tops off at about eight for the rest of the series. So I and they're all they all get really equal a screen time more or less throughout when they, the books they're in. So it's a lot of people to talk about theoretically, but from the first book from Greater Duty, I only had three. I started with three, then I went up to five, went up to eight, and now I went up to nine. Now I'm going then back down to eight again. So, um, no. So my first three main characters were uh, Darklaw, who's uh, the Trandon. He's a lizard man from the cover, and he was another example of a thing that is easier to do in my head than actually on paper, which is writing an emotionless character. Like it's very hard to do in practice. I, I realized because you don't realize until you're actually writing it how much you could convey from a character based on body language and how much like that affects like how much how much you need that to show what's going on. And with a character who doesn't have any of that, it's really hard 
especially writing from their point of view. So, I mean, spoiler alert, that changes to some degree. That's really mentioned in the, the blurb a bit because obviously that wouldn't be able to last for an entire series as a main character. So he's like a character who's basically been, even though he's not, he's, even though he's obviously not a machine, he's kind of programmed to do a certain task, to follow certain orders and uh, lead an invasion of, of this portion of the galaxy. And as the blurb says also, like events uh, take place fairly again in the book about the midway point, a little, bit, a little before the midway point where that starts to change for him. And he has to decide now, if he wants to do what he's been basically programmed to do or whether he wants to do what he's now come to realize is the right thing to do. And that comes in part thanks to his contact with other allies who we work with earlier in this war for purely practical reasons. But he comes to actually care about as friends. And so that's where you have my other main character from the first book, uh, Nyasar, who's the Grand Admiral and the princess of, of her species. Uh, from her own, like they have their own uh, star system that's kind of ostracized to some degree by the galactic community or the the regional galactic community, which is kind of like an, a European Union uh, inspired system, which might indicate my feelings toward it. <laughs> um, so, and so they obviously become allies earlier on in this invasion, even for practically because she wants revenge and he wanted uh, more bodies to throw at the enemy, and also people who have more intimate knowledge of the region. And through working together, things start to change, and and so both of them go through a lot in those in that first book. And um, I mean, they're both obviously still main characters in book five already. In book five and book six, I'm writing already halfway done with book six now, and they're still they're still going strong. They're still had their own different challenges and moving along. So they're still there. And also, my other third the third main character who is a little bit less of a presence in that book was Dalcon, who's uh. Like, I don't know, the species is like kind of demon looking, but he's a very, uh, very honorable, very like, uh, by the book kind of like almost like a law enforcement type of character who's, uh, is part of an organization in this region of the galaxy that's kind of fills a role kind of so much what the Jedi did, except they're more militaristic and they're more directly working with the government and working with the military as opposed to the Jedi that were much more like their own thing and just helping out because that's what they would want to do. So this is a much more like paramilitary type of organization that he's part of. And so his obviously his story is he's on the other side of the of the, the war going on where he's trying to stop them. And then obviously as things progress and a bigger threat shows itself that they want to try and work to fight, then that starts to also change a bit. And he obviously uh, has more, role, more of a role to play uh, going forward. So those are the big three from that, from the first book. And then uh, what, I, what I often also do is I have characters show up early, in earlier books as side characters who then, for whether reasons of direct story or just because they're really fun characters that I like being around, they get promoted in a sense to being uh, main characters. So that's where the two uh, – the other two viewpoints came from in book two, which they were both um, like, like very present side characters in book one who then – became uh, promoted in book two and then book three there are a couple that were introduced introduced brand new and one that was also introduced in book two as a side character who does so much fun to write that she became a main character who actually goes through I, I think at this point probably the most like meaningful character arc of the entire series possibly out of everybody just completely by accident in a way like this character wasn't even in my concept of the original series this character showed up in book two 
just to work off, just to play off another character because she made him uncomfortable. And it was kind of funny and it was like a fun interaction. But then that character just stuck around and was fun to, to, to play around with in the books. And then her story just went on and became something much more meaningful and much more something really cool that really pays off by book five, especially, and, uh, and also continues to pay off for the rest of the series. And then also, and also, like I said, also other characters either got introduced or got promoted to main character status throughout uh, books three and four. And then by book five, as I said, it's where it maxes out. There's no, but no new viewpoint characters for the last two books because like there comes a point where you can't really add anybody new because you don't have enough space to like really give them the proper development, the proper space that other characters who've been around for three, four, five, six books uh, have had. So, and I tried to give my characters like plenty of time for readers because like, I like to give them all equal screen time because I know every reader is going to have somebody else who's their favorite. And it would really suck to have one character who just disappears for like a quarter of the book and just doesn't show up because they get like only like half the amount of chapters that somebody else gets. So I really tried to give them all something to do, which is a challenge at times in the outline phase. That's why I outline because then I managed to prepare that all before I start to write. And I don't have problems of a character just doing nothing the whole book. <laughs> right. And so far, thank God it's worked out. I'd have to kill him off. <laughs> I can't imagine managing that many characters. My brain hurts just thinking about it. Yeah, I'm probably, I'm probably not going to do that. I'm probably, yeah, I'm probably not going to do this very often with my books in the future. I like get something that, like I said, it's worked out very well because I've when, I, when I'm outlining, I'm like somehow magically all the pieces fall into place as I outline. Like I know who needs to be where and how this connects to that. It just seems to work out almost by itself at this point. And I guess maybe it helps that I've written most of these characters for long enough now that I know them well enough, like as people that I can know how they're going to act and how, what makes sense and where they would be. And, but like I said, I'm not planning to make a lot of books that have this many characters as viewpoints. Like I'm probably going to keep most of my books to between like three and five at most. Like my, the dragon hand has three, and that series might go up to maybe four or five, but it's not going to go past five for sure because that would just be too many. So you said you outline. So when you outline, are you like looking like a serial killer with like pin boards and strings everywhere to try to keep track of all of these characters? Uh, no, my outline is pretty like pretty simple. It's really just I just go I just go chapter one, and I, I make a, I make a list of like before I start I write down all my character viewpoints. So I know who's who's there. Then I mark down how many chapters each one has gone, and I just go through chapter one. And I figure out who, where the story is going to begin, and then I figure out who this, who's there. Then I figure, and I just go chapter two, three, four, and just go on from there. And I just try to figure out who needs to go where next. And then obviously, I try to rotate it so that you don't have a character vanishing for too long. Because obviously, with eight people, even if even if I just did one through eight and then repeat it, which I don't do because it depends on again who needs to be where and what scenes flow to the other ones. So I try to. Uh, just figure out like i said it kind of just works in a way it's like one of the i don't quite understand why it works so well but it really has fortunately fallen out that way that it's like everything seems to play out well with all the characters and i just I literally just go chapter one through 64 or whatever and uh just that way i rather get write like a paragraph or two about what happens in the chapter and um like i said also i mark down how many chapters i've given to each character so far so i know how many more each needs and who to then uh, shift over here who needs to go next and also I obviously also I, I highlight like the name of the character when I make the chapter so I know like, I could just skim through and I could see whose name is highlighted so I know which character get, got this chapter so I could just easily scroll through it but it's really like a very basic outline in a lot of ways even though they get long they get like 
I don't know, like 20 pages long, single space on, on Word, like 20 something pages because 60 something chapters is a lot of chapters throughout. Wow, <laughs> yeah, it is. Books. And, and we're not going to lie, Winder goes full serial killer when he does his outlines. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I just, yeah, I just, I just, I just, I just think very like start to finish with my with my story ideas. So it's very easy for me. It just comes naturally to me to just start from page one or chapter one and just go through to the end. And then obviously I go back at times and rearrange chapters here and there, or I or I add some other end of the chapter or two in sometimes. But otherwise, it's just really a straight shot from the beginning to the end most of the time. What a show off! <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So, w- without giving too much away, uh, does your do your books have a main bad guy that you battle against, or is it like a corporation or another government? How, how does that work? Uh, it's it's a weird question because it kind of it kind of shifts a bit or kind of fluctuates a bit over the course of the books. Like, without spoiling anything, like there are some villains who are there at one point to kind of go away for whatever reason for a while, but like it all is connected, and they eventually will come back and like until eventually get defeated finally but like like the main the main villain or the main antagonist for us in book three wasn't even a, a, a known entity in book one or even book two till the very end so like like it shifts a bit like you said the first the first book was one villain the second book was another villain but was was related to the first villain from book one and then the events of that book lead into the contact with this other civilization this this Galactic empire basically with that, and then that begins a whole war that's lasted from book three, or really from the end of book two, and then book three all the way till the end of book five is when that war is finally going to finish. And then the last two books, I'm not going to say what's going to happen there because that kind of kind of kind kind of goes full circle in a way, without giving anything away back to the beginning, while still obviously building off all that's happened before and all the new characters who showed up who weren't in book one. And it's a, like a lot of fun stuff. My, my, my editor seems to think it's going well. My editor th- said book five is the best one I've written so far. So, I mean, you know, it isn't just me who thinks it. All right. Fair enough. So Galaxy Ascendant is clearly part of a series. I know because it says so in the title. There are currently three books available for purchase on Amazon. Uh, you've mentioned book seven. So I'm guessing that uh, four, five, and six are still in the Kickstarter Indiegogo phase, uh, but our four and five, four and five are being crowdfunded right now. They're going to be coming out within the next month or two. I mean, I'm going to be giving tough to backers early from like Indiegogo, and then the Kickstarter just started today. I'm going to be moving that forward, and then once that's done, I'm going to put out books four and five. Book six, I'm in the middle of writing right now. I'm about I don't know about two thirds the way done with that one, maybe almost three quarters by now. And then book seven is going to be the last book in this series. But as I've said, I've said online a few times, um, the Galaxy Ascendant itself is not going to end here. It's going to have a, a lot of plans for uh, follow-up series, for spin-off series, because I, I literally have a whole galaxy to work with, and I haven't even explored it all yet. And one of the things I want to do with my series that Star Wars, I think, messed up on to a degree is that they, they introduced the whole galaxy like right at the beginning, and it's all like known to varying degrees, obviously, but it's all like mapped, and you know what's there, and it's everything. So I, I deliberately kept like certain parts of the galaxy completely like unexplored, like the flag completely just blocked out on the map, even that just nobody knows what's there yet, because I have more space to do more interesting things later that might be separate and then tie in or might not. And even with book one, book one I said was just one region, and then by book three we unlock in a sense. Uh, second big region of the galaxy. So now we have about, I don't know, about 
three-fifths of the galaxy is known space, as it were, as far as our characters are concerned. And I'm kind of trying to like slow roll it in a way because I'm only obviously I'm only doing this by myself. So I don't want to try and even though I do, I am maybe a little bit ambitious more so than some authors and what I'm trying to build. I don't want to go overboard and like try really go too crazy like and try and have this whole huge thing that I can't handle right now. And now it would present too many plot issues and everything. So it's good to just have my regions and then the unexplored regions that will get explored spoiler alert eventually, but not in this main series. Like I have already plans for at least two of my spinoffs that will follow certain characters or follow certain plot threads in a set in a way from the main series that I will write at some point. So I'm probably going to, my goal would be eventually to like alternate one Galaxy Tendence series and then one unrelated series, like a fantasy series or something else. And then that way I could go back to my own universe, this universe whenever I want, this big setting and not get burnt out by doing only this and to be able to still alternate and have fantasy, which I enjoy writing too. And all the space opera, then maybe that'll all connect one day eventually too, which, uh, might happen also. Okay. So, right. so what kind of tech can readers expect from your universe? Uh, faster than light travel, ray guns, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of stuff is fast and light travel. Like, I mean, basically it's, I just use hyperspace because it's really just a way to get places. I'm not trying to do any kind of stories based on how it works or anything aside from being able to manipulate it to a degree in terms of battle tactics and stuff like that. Um, so there's hyperspace, there's uh, energy weapons of varying types. There's laser swords. Sometimes they don't really show up much till the mid book, the middle books of the series, but they get they've been getting more and more uh, screen time with each book that they're in because they're they're there now, and why not use them? Uh, and also some other interesting, also some other interesting, just uh, tell you obviously some cloaking tech around. There's uh, some interesting tech about that was used to be able to use to like kind of hide. Uh, memories in or hide thoughts in in book one that it really is mainly in book one and with all this stuff that gets brought up again later and uh, yeah i'm not really trying to reinvent a whole lot as far as tech goes i'm really just I'm more, I'm more focused on the story and the universe as opposed to like trying to really like kind of come up with something crazy new although i, although I do have a kind of cool super weapon that uh, shows up well it shows up and it's first mentioned in book three and i'm not going to say how long it lasts all I could say it, it doesn't only last one book because I'm not Star Wars and I have better plans than they do. So it lasts more than one book. I could promise that much, but I think I have a pretty unique super weapon concept that I don't know if I don't know how much sense it makes in actual science, but I don't really care because it was <laughs> yeah. a cool idea and it kind of works in setting. And I have, I have enough magic anyway in this in this story that a little bit of stretching physics doesn't really matter at this yeah. point. Hmm. All right, so. Oh, the next question is yours, Winder. So based on the covers, your universe clearly has aliens in it. How do you go about creating the aliens? Do you let nature inspire you? Do you come up with them whole cloth? How do you do it? Yeah, it's a little bit of all of, all of the above, really, because, I mean, my books, I famously talk about how my books have no humans at all in them. They have some near humans, but there's no actual humans in any of my books that I've written so far. Because I said, if I'm, if I'm making my own universe, why would I use what exists in our universe? Like, in terms of main species. If I'm writing sci-fi, like, all my favorite characters from space operas that I've read in the past or played in the past were always the aliens anyway. So if I'm going to write my own books, I'm going to write what I enjoy and write aliens. And so that's all my characters are uh, different species. I think I have 
I have the most diverse books ever. I have having nine different species represented in my main characters. So they're the most diverse books ever written, I think. Um, well, simultaneously being not diverse because there's no humans in them at all. So I have, uh, I mean, some of them obviously were more animal inspired, like the cat people, like my dinosaur people. I have bird people also, uh, snake people that show up later. And also, I'm also, uh, were inspired by other, other franchises like Star Wars, like, uh, Star Trek, like Mass Effect, like just different aspects that were interesting about characters from there that I picked up on and took aspects from and then added some new stuff of my own and then just mixed it all together and some fun stuff with that. And obviously something that I just kind of, I mean, none of it really is completely from nothing because anything is going to be some influence from somewhere, but there were some species that I kind of like didn't really base it off anything specific that I just, obviously you could find comparisons here and there, but things that I just like, I wanted this kind of species. So I made it and just put it there and I created my whole setup around them. I mean, I have, I mean, in terms of name species in the books right now, there's at least like 30 at this point, like most of which don't have a lot of screen time because that's be ridiculous to try and give them all a lot of time because like I only have, I'm not trying to not writing thousand page books. It's not yet. I mean, I hope not to get that long. That's a little bit too long, but um, I mean, I, I mean, I, if I keep writing in this universe for a long time, which I plan to, I would hope to eventually be able to explore most of not all of these species as much as I can. Obviously, there will be many more species that show up in this galaxy because I haven't even explored a good chunk of it at this point. So, and also there's extra galactic stuff potential also that will maybe show up without spoiling anything. So like, there's a lot of uh, different options of things that I could uh, build on and just a lot of fun to just create my own alien species to create, to build their own piece of basic culture uh, for what's needed for the story. Cause I try and not, I don't world build. Like, I'm not one of the people who world builds like a ton Beyond what's in the book itself, I do have a little bit of extra stuff that I often put in the glossary at the end, which is getting way too long now. Um, like I just keep adding stuff to it, and it's like getting to the point where I'm like, is this actually too long to put in? But luckily, the later books in the series add less because so much of it's already been introduced already. So there's really not much more that I don't really – is not adding so much more new stuff in the last three books because we're almost at the end of it. I'm not going to keep shoving in a new thing just for the sake of it. But um, – like it does get longer. I do add new ship classes. I add new planets I or new systems. I add things like that. New uh, fake language words that I made up that people might want to look up at some point. So I have those that I add in and obviously the different species, all of which are mentioned there. At some point I do try – I do always try and add. Whenever I do a, do a little glossary entry, I try and put something a little bit extra that doesn't necessarily like – that isn't necessarily stated outright in the book itself. So anybody who wants to read a little bit more could go read that and then – if they feel like it, we add a little bit more lore. And then eventually, obviously, when I get to focus on these species more, then I'll be able to, to go into that in more depth. Okay. That is way more organized than we are, and maybe we should take notes. So this is the part, dear listener, where we go over the reviews. So I've skimmed the reviews, as I always do. This helps the right readers find the right books. So please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. That's uh, BookBub, Goodreads, Amazon, wherever you buy your books, leave reviews. Um, the first book in this universe only had 14 reviews at the time of recording with a 4.8 star average rating, which is criminally low on the number of reviews. And people, you should go fix this. Um, all reviews, though, have merits, good or bad, because um, they help the right – like I said, they help the right readers find the right books. This one didn't have negative reviews. So let's move on to the positive ones. Um, they thought your space opera was a lot of fun. 
uh, and that you balance uh, amazing characterization with the action. So does this reaction surprise you? And how do you keep that up if you write more books? You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's what I want to do. So the fact that people are getting that from the books is means I'm doing my job right at this point. So, I mean, I'm, obviously I'm trying to have interesting and fun characters that are, are, are fun to read and fun to follow throughout the series. And also I like to have my big space battle. I have a lot of space battles in these books, like book one. I mean, I can't even remember offhand how many there were. It was like half the book, I think, is space battles. And then that kind of calms down a little bit in book two. There's not so many in book two. Then book three, four, and five. There's a galactic scale war going on, so there's space battles, uh, more than like, like tons of them, like everywhere, and that's like I just enjoy writing those because that's what I like from Hidaba that I've read. And you often you don't you don't get that so much even in Star Wars because I guess for budgetary reasons they don't do big battles in Star Wars, even though logically they should be because officially the sizes of the fleets that these people have are massive, but you never see it on the screen anywhere. So I try not to portray that. To, to, to the varying degrees of how big the fleets that I have are, we have fleets of like in the hundreds or the thousands that are fighting in these big battles at different points in the story with some smaller ones, of course, uh, here and there. So the fact that readers are enjoying it is, means I'm doing my job. And obviously I need to make sure to keep, keep that up and can find ways to kind of up, up the stakes a little bit without going too far. That's what star Wars did in the old Spanish universe. Sometimes is kind of realize they had to keep, they, they were trying to keep, upping the stakes and they had to keep upping and upping until it became depressing grimdark with the later books. And I, that's why I didn't like it anymore. So like that's part of the reason why actually for long-term plans, I plan to not follow the same characters forever. Like they're going to eventually get to retire and have like, I mean, retire in quotation marks. So they'll still be around. At least most of them will and be able to have lives and have happy endings, but they'll still be in the universe. So that if they need to cameo appearance somewhere for some plot going on, that they're around to show up and uh, they're still a presence. Like I like, like fall back from being a frontline commander to being uh, like a, a leader, like a more like uh, background leader, that kind of thing. And I'll follow newer characters, but, I'll, but that's one way that I really want to be able to like tell many more stories in this universe without having to constantly find the next biggest uh, fleet or the next biggest super weapon, because that, that way it leads to just, nonsense like you have with star wars and you're having it still with star wars like what are they going to do for the next movie like it was a joke about how they're gonna have like a fleet of death stars like like how do you up what you had before at this point so like i'm really trying to just i guess like i said earlier i'm trying to be ambitious but not go too crazy at least not, not too soon because that leads to that i just get stuck and anything else that we write after that point it's like um, feels less less interesting, less uh, important. Like it's an issue with Star Wars, with the old 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 Republic stuff, which was a very cool stuff. But some of those stories are such grand scale that it makes the original series seem like a minor, like 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 a like a brush war, like a little small little war going on compared to all these big like Sith wars that were like millions of ships and all this stuff. It's like like it's it's cool, but it does make the original stories feel unimportant in a sense. So I'm trying to avoid that. Also, I'm trying to avoid prequels as much as I can without, within reason. So I'm trying to like, I'm trying to learn from the mistakes that Star Wars and other franchises made and not do it myself, basically. All right. And there's plenty of that to learn. Okay. So was there anything else about the Galaxy's Ascendant series, specifically A Greater Duty, that you wanted to tell us before we moved on? Um, I mean, this is a style. I mean, this is space opera, like, 
like full on space opera. So anybody who likes like epic type stories, big scale stories who like characters who are in command positions, especially because I have a lot of those like in leadership positions, I do a deal with, like, I mean, I don't, I don't really intentionally write themes into my books most of the time. I just try to just write the stories and the themes kind of come out of that when they happen. But like leadership obviously comes up a lot because of different kinds of leaders who work together, who uh, conflict with each other. And it's always something that's fascinating me, I guess, through reading a lot of, through learning a lot of history. It's something that comes up a lot. So there's a lot of that. There's a lot of, um, a lot of very colorful characters in a literal sense and a figurative sense with all the different alien species that I have. And with the, with the later books, especially, there are more characters who are in smaller positions, uh, for lack of a better term, that could, that have different types of stories going on as part of the overall big story from the characters who are in leadership positions. So it's a lot of, and I, I try and get in everything that I like in this kind of French, in this kind of series or this kind of genre and find a way to make it all fit. And I think I mean, my readers so far uh, have been enjoying it. And that's what I keep plan to keep doing. You've written this story uh, in the sub fleet, uh, subgenre of space fleet for science fiction. So what is your biggest pet peeve when you read about space navies duking it out in the voids of space? Um, obviously, karma is a thing. So please speak generally. But what's your biggest pet peeve in the genre? Well, I mean, I don't have anything, nothing super specific that comes to mind. I know one of them is obviously like battles that are just not interesting or like, 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 I mean, it's an issue with Star Wars more so than other franchises, at least at some points for like Star Wars. I mean, it does intentionally draw on like old naval warfare in a sense where like the ships don't move very much. I'm more of a fan of space opera battles and space fleet battles where like the ships are actually maneuvering and moving around more. Like, so, so I mean, it depends on my fleet. Some of my fleets in my universe do deal with the more static positions and like just maneuvering slowly and firing from range there. But other, other species, other races that I have, they are much more like focused on their movement, focus on their ships or even their capital ships are like fat, fast enough that they can really fly around and take advantage of three dimensions, which I also think a lot of space battles kind of forget that there are three dimensions in space, which like, I mean, I, I mean, I don't like, overly focus on trying to get science right because it's space opera. It doesn't, it comes out, comes second to the story and the characters. But like, if I'm in space and I'm trying, I'm, obviously this space works how space works as we know it in real life. So three dimensions is there. So I do try and integrate that into my battles when I have them to have maneuvers that go underneath ships, go over ships. And uh, I'll take advantage of uh, how there's no real friction in space. So you can really like maneuver uh, in different ways and you can maneuver in atmospheres. And also I even have at least at one point, like there are ships that are designed for space that perform less well in atmosphere. So there's one, I think there's one fighter battle. I think I have, I think which book, which book it was in, but that plays a role in this battle because these fighters, one group is fighting, one group of fighters is designed in a, in a way that makes them much more effective in atmosphere versus other ones that are really, that are hampered by their design in atmosphere. And that plays a role in the conflict there. But uh, really it's just the lack of interesting tactics and the, uh, and also this lack of taking advantage of what space has to offer, what like, options you have with all that. And also obviously the bigger scale. Like I don't like, I mean, it is fun to have the little battles and have the hero ships doing stuff all the time, but also like space opera is big. It's supposed to be big. Like I want big battles. At least I obviously, and obviously I know in real movies and stuff, it's hard with budget reasons to do that kind of thing, but it doesn't make, it doesn't make me want it any less. And in books, especially like, there's no reason not to have it. They obviously don't go overboard. You don't you don't need to have million ship fleets, but 
in the hundreds and the thousands is reasonable enough, especially if you have civilizations that have been around long enough and societies that are big enough to support that kind of military that, uh, that you really have. And, uh, I think that's really the main, my main thoughts on space battles. And also, it also is obviously make it exciting. There are ways to make it exciting. Even if your main ship from the character is on, isn't a fighter literally getting shot and they're almost dying the entire time. Obviously there's still threats to them in the battle itself. And the tension also comes from commanding a battle and you have to obviously adjust as things go wrong or go right and how you adapt to everything. And it's also a lot of fun to like theory craft. I, I'll, usually I don't do this as much, but I occasionally will like sketch out on paper, like which fleet is where and then who is trying to do what and then trying to figure out what makes the most sense of maneuvers and counter maneuvers for different characters, especially when I have characters like in book five, especially where I have two like almost thrawn level uh, tactical intellects going at it. So it's kind of like, well, that was one of the ideas for book five really was like, what if Thrawn had to fight somebody as smart as he was with the same resources that he had more or less, because you don't have that in star Wars. Thrawn is really cool. But in the original series, he was basically fighting a guerrilla war with like 20 ships, which was obviously very cool, but it's not, you know, you don't get to see how he would actually perform with a full fleet. And also, and obviously in the new canon, he also never really has a full fleet. Uh, that he works with and also he doesn't fight a full fleet or anybody near as smart as him. So that's one of the ideas I had for book five is to really have that kind of um, like, I guess you could almost call it like a, like a Sherlock Holmes and, Mor- and Moriarty kind of situation where it's too, like it, it almost made it harder. One of these things, again, that was easier in my head than it was to write because if you have two characters that are that smart, how do you have somebody win? You have to have somebody win each battle. So you need to figure out why one wins and what factors they couldn't prepare for that play a role and that kind of thing. So it also made it a lot of fun to write. And uh, I mean, I, I also enjoy smart characters. I don't, I don't like writing stupid characters. I want characters who are at least they obviously make mistakes, but they're reasonably intelligent because that's what I think readers enjoy more. Same with heroic characters. Also, like, I like characters who are, even if they're on the wrong side, as far as the story is concerned, that there aren't like the viewpoints at least aren't evil people. There are obviously evil characters, like pure evil characters, but not in viewpoint uh, characters. But I don't really enjoy writing that. So, so speaking of military science fiction, your bio mentions that you're currently serving in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. Uh, we ask all authors who are military veterans this question: um, how, how do you feel like your time in the army uh, shapes the kind of stories you write? Um, it has done a little bit. Not it hasn't done it hasn't affected very much in my main books. Because it was all mostly, at least in a general sense, prepared and like plotted before I even got to the army. But it has like both both of the short stories that I put out in those anthologies this is earlier this year. We both definitely took a, a fair amount from my own experience in the army, like mostly from the boring parts. Because that's what most of it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's always like in the story, it's boring until something happens. In real life, it just stays boring, which that's usually a good thing, anyway. So. Um, so yeah, so those stories. I mean, I think I, I think it's something easier to do with the short stories for me is to then take a specific experience that I had or a specific kind of knowledge that I have now, and then write a story based around that. Like I one of the stories I wrote was basically a character who has the same kind of job that I have, which is really a boring job, and obviously something happens in the story where nothing happens in real life yet, and uh, so gets to do something with that. And obviously also just other little like experiences being in around. I mean, I've been I've been in the army for almost two years now, so I have enough time to, to see different things and also obviously i mean it does impact my own st- other stories a bit in the, in the sense that i'm around people who are officers now 
I'm, I, I work with them all the time. And also the IDF is very different in its terms of um, relations between officers and like, and non-officers than in the U S military and other militaries. Like it's much more informal from what I understand. Like there's no, like we, we, we're almost never saluting at like, ever. I guess none of that is it's like we call people by their first names or the last names whenever most of the time, even officers up to a certain point. And, um, so it's a different kind of environment also. And then us being around them also, obviously I understand a little bit more like what they actually do. And it's why like in the last Jedi, the, the Admiral Holdo would made me so angry because <laughs> she was the worst military officer I've ever seen in science fiction of all time. I think like, like the worst character in the Frank, at least Jar Jar was like, he was stupid and annoying, but he wasn't, he didn't make me angry when he was on screen. She made me angry. And I was glad she, I'm glad at least she died. Uh, but like, like I, I've, I've joked about it, but I'm not really joking. We're like any of the 19 year old girls I had as my, as my commanders in basic training, like almost two years ago now would have done a better job than she did in that same situation. Cause they're at least not, they're at least not idiots who are just trying to like gain like their personal clout at the cost of the mission. Like at least they have, a reasonable maturity level to do what needs to be done and be respectful to your subordinates because that's how you get respect. That's how, that's how you, that things function. Right. So, so I mean, that's mostly what I've gotten so far. And obviously uh, just the environment also gives us some opportunity. I mean, like, I mean, not in direct writing sense, but it has gotten me a lot better at finding those like 10, 15 minutes to write a, like a chapter or write a few pages when I have time because there were times in the army where I have no time to write on a computer. Luckily I do now at my current job. It's one of the good things about, it, even though it's boring, I get to write a lot. I've written three and a half books in the army so far because my job lets me to sit there and write the whole time pretty much. But uh, even in training where I had, we had no phones during, during the day, we only had phones for one hour every evening. So during the day I had a little notebook in my pocket that I could then take out in breaks. I wrote, I wrote a 30,000 word story in about a month and a half there. Like during that time, because I could just find a few minutes, and when I go home for the weekend, I then type it up, and uh, so that has helped a lot in that sense, also. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's really, like I said, mostly like it's mostly affected directly in terms of story sense, the short stories for now, but I definitely see it impacting other stuff later on, and also even more critical of uh, other stories to a to a degree. Cool. Do you ever draw on people that uh, that you know in the military changing names to protect the guilty? Uh, no, I don't think I've ever done anybody specifically yet. Like certainly be character types, maybe like uh, or just or just general like how I know people react in situations when things are actually happening for real. Because we've had some nothing really serious yet, but we have had we got deployed to the Gaza border area twice this past year. So like we actually got like deployed down there once or twice, like when I was on the base. So like, I get to see how people actually like act when something real might be happening, even if nothing actually ended up happening in the end. So I get to see that directly now. And so obviously that can play some, even if not directly, I can definitely, definitely is in my head somewhat when I'm writing similar situations in my own stories now, because like so often in movies and other books, they keep the reactions they give, like are not really in line with how it often is in real life. Not that it needs to be always in real life, like the way it is in real life, because it's obviously fiction and we're making fun stories first. But it does often help, especially if you're trying to focus on that kind of aspect of the story to then be as authentic as possible, be as uh, logical as possible. And it definitely has helped, I think. And I mean, definitely at some point, I imagine like some people 
again, even if not directly, like your character, not directly based off them specifically, but like aspects of how this officer acted or how this person did their job or whatever, like that's going to show up at some point somewhere eventually, I'm sure. All right. So the um, next part, dear listener, would be normally where we uh, talk about the science that makes science fiction fun. But as we've mentioned, oh, no, this was actually mentioned in the pre-show, but we recorded this way in advance just to work around Yakov's uh, IDF schedule. Um, speaking of the IDF, before before I jump into that, because I just had a random thought, most of the stories in science fiction where we talk first contact are happening sort of in the U.S., written by American authors for an American audience. So have you ever considered writing one of those set in Israel just to do something different because nobody's done it that I know of? Uh, yeah, not directly. Actually, I'm actually working right now on a more anime-inspired uh, story. Like, I don't know if you know Isekai. Like, it's like the Portal Fantasy uh, anime stories where, I, where it's going to basically be an idea of like a tank commander basically gets transported to a fantasy world and things go from there. So – like, I'm definitely going to write that story, but that's obviously not quite the same as like a first contact story with like Earth and stuff. Because like I haven't, I, I haven't really thought about doing that kind of stuff yet. Because my space opera is all uh, human free for now, but I do have that other series planned. If you do, let us know and come back because it'd be interesting to see sci-fi written in places that we don't usually get to see. But uh, back to the science. So finally, we like to remember the science and make science fiction fun. However, since we're recording this in advance, any article we uh, we link to would be way out of date um, because, like I said, we're working around his army schedule. Uh, so instead, let's ask a fun question. So if you could serve on board any ship in the science fiction literary universes, which ship would you choose and why? Yeah, I had to think about this for a little while. Well, I mean, one option that comes to mind immediately is the Normandy from Mass Effect, because I really enjoyed that series and all those characters in in the, in the main crew of that story were really fun characters, especially the aliens, of course. So I mean, that's definitely one of them. The other one, I guess, was any ship that Thrawn is commanding, because he's the best person to work for in Star Wars of all time, and the only person who I would want to work for in Star Wars if I got transported there somehow. So, I mean, those are my two, I think, uh, that come to mind. The Normandy was a very sexy ship. All right. Yes. So, one more. What is a spaceship you wouldn't want to be a part of the crew for? Uh, well, so, I mean, my immediate answer was actually mentioned in the notes because, uh, I mean, my immediate thought was Voyager. It's like <laughs> a giant, giant disaster, like that whole series. And, like, it's so many jokes about how, how they, like, everybody is just, like, keeps yeah. dying and Janeway keeps keeping them stuck there forever. So... So yeah, that one I would not want to be on. Also, I guess I, w- I also guess I wouldn't want to be on the Enterprise D during the movies. During the show it would be fine, but during the movies, everyone seems to die on that ship every every movie. So I don't think I want to be there during the movies. And as often as they're thrown around, you would think someone would invent a seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a, a good idea. I don't know why no one's thought of it. Because <laughs> the the space effect where everything falls apart, like if you look when they take fire, it's the same effect every time. Yeah. So I imagine that would require them to get creative if they had people wearing seatbelts. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you can, you can stop people in the seats getting tossed around with the seatbelt on just so they don't fly out of the seats. Like, you're just like one of those like Star Trek like, jokes that just probably never going to go away. Like, no seatbelts. No, no, like chairs, chairs aren't fixed to the floor either, at least in the original trilogy. Like, that's even dumber. Like, right. At least attached to the floor. It just tipped over. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So apparently in the 70s when they were making the, the original Star Trek, they didn't have bolts yet. So <laughs> Yeah, where well, the sets, sets didn't allow – didn't let them like 
bolting to the floor or something, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so, all right. As we bring this puppy to a close, Yakov, uh, how can listeners find you? And as usual, dear listener, they will all be in the show notes. Uh, the best ways to find me are either on Twitter at, at Yakov Merkin, just my name on Twitter. And also, obviously, my website, yakovmerkin.com, also very simple. I don't blog as often as I should, but I'm trying to get to a point where I can at least get something up every week. Hopefully, I'm a, again, it's one of those things where I keep trying to do it, but it doesn't always seem to happen. So I'm trying to work on that more. I have a Facebook page, an author page on Facebook too, which also it's one of the things where I'm trying to really start posting there more or at least start sharing from my website whenever I post there uh, more often to just connect them more, more better. But really, I guess someone wants to just ask me something or talk to me, Twitter is the best place because it's very conducive for that kind of thing. And I mean, I'm on there all, most of the time because I have the app on my phone. And even though service isn't that good on my base, it's good enough that I can use Twitter uh, pretty much all the time if I want. And my job has to use my phone when I'm sitting there. So I have it. And uh, and yeah, so that's really the best place. And obviously, where with anybody who comments on my website on an article or a post that I make, I mean, I usually try, I try to answer every comment that I get if there's a question that needs answering or something like that. All right. And where can listeners find us, Mr. Winder? Our website is www.sfshenanigans.com. Our Twitter handle is at SFS, that's Sierra Foxtrot Sierra underscore show. Our email is podcast at sfshenanigans.com. And our Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash sfshenanigans. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Chris Winder and Saskia Smalls, I'm J.R. Hanley, and this was the Sci-Fi Shenanigans Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of space and all things that go boom. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that uh, archived episode that was in the... uh, in the digital memory hole that we found. We thought you'd enjoy it. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the archive for the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back at our regular scheduled time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.